Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we are the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We're going to discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You're going to learn about where the sport's been, where we think it's going to go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you will ever hear. Ben, it's uh, episode 24 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. I, I want to start out by saying thanks to our buddy Eric for filling in on episode 23 while I was in the great state of Georgia at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Um, but obviously, episode 24, you know, Ben, I mean, everybody is going to expect us, like, all right, it's episode 24, you got to talk about Gordon. You know, it's episode 24, you, that you, you can't have an episode 24 of any racing podcast, right, and not talk about Gordon. And so... We're going to have to devote a lot of our time to Gordon because he is an absolute legend. He ran more than 93,000 laps in the number 24 car. Um, unfortunately, he didn't win any races, but Cecil Gordon did a lot for NASCAR. He was a, an excellent driver who never really got the, the ride that he deserved, uh, typically drove for his own team. Um, but Cecil Gordon, Ben, he was really the first one in that 24 car that I recall who... Uh, who went on a hot streak back in 1973? The dude finished third in Cup points, and at one point, I think he had six top five finishes in a span of eight races. So, while he did not win a Cup race, that was definitely the time period where Richard Petty, Bobby Allison, Kale Yarbrough, those guys were dominant. Uh, Cecil Gordon definitely did a lot, and um, while he may be not be while he may not be the most uh, memorable driver named Gordon to ever drive the 24 car. I feel like this dude really deserved his due because not a lot of people know much about Cecil Gordon. Um, and Ben, you you know, he uh, made his last start in the Cup Series in 85. So he was coming out of the sport when you were getting into it and covering it as a member of the media. But seems like from all accounts, this gentleman passed away about nine years ago, uh, was a very likable guy. He just never really got the break to uh, to drive for a big team and and just like you know a lot of guys there's always be the question of well, what could he have done if he was in better equipment oh absolutely uh that's true aaron and you know I, I did get to know cecil pretty well and he actually worked for richard childress racing after he retired from driving that's right uh, and also yeah. and also he was a crew chief for greg Sachs when greg came into the 
Cup Series and funded his own team, number 51. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and actually, those cars that he bought, he bought from Rainier Racing after Kale won some races in those Chevrolets. And then the funny thing, he, he ran number 51. His cars were red and white. Greg's cars were. But if you looked inside, they were orange. And that's the cars that he ran, the Hardy's uh, paint schemes, number 28. So it's kind of interesting hmm. that uh, those that's where the cars came from. But, yeah, Cecil was such a neat guy. And I want to ask you a trivia question, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here. Just, <laughs> I love it when you put me on the spot, I'm, man. I'm really not good. trying to do that, but it's just all in fun. All right. Do you know where, do you know where Cecil Gordon was from? Any idea? Uh, just throw out, just throw it out there. Yeah, I looked it up um, when I was doing some Cecil Gordon research, as many race fans are wont to do. Um, but I forgot. So for the sake of argument, I don't know. Lay it on me. Okay. All right. He was from a little town in North Carolina called Horseshoe, North Carolina. Did you know that? I didn't know I it was no a real idea. place. It is. And I have no clue, honestly, to be fair with you, where Horseshoe, what's close to you. It was a little crossroads town called Horseshoe, North Carolina. And just a Cecil is just a neat little guy. He he had a fun little laugh to him, and I mean, he just—he was a heck of a race car driver too. He had sure. a lot of, a lot of uh, great finishes, top tens, top five, a few top fives, and uh, but a heck of a driver, and even a even a greater uh, mechanic under the hood of a car. But you know what? I want to I want to go back just a smidge further back than than uh, Cecil. There was a a guy named Sam McQuag who also ran the number twenty four in the cup series. And I think he did win a couple of races. I think he won a firecracker 400 at Daytona, if I'm not mistaken. And there was a team owner. Her name was Betty Lilly and Bobby Allison actually drove for uh, Betty Lilly. And he, she ran the number 24. And I think by the way, Sam ran the number 24 for Betty Lilly. And if you th- if you go back to Darlington, the time when Kale went over the wall, he was racing, against Sam and the 24 car and they were racing for the lead 1965 that was the year that then Jarrett won the race by 14 laps in the 11 car 1965 Southern 500 and and during that race it was Kale and Sam racing for the lead and that's the one where Kale went over the wall Sam didn't go over the wall but he was running the number 24 car so but yeah, that's a little bit of track fact trivia there. But uh, yeah, you know, the twenty four car Ben. Now that you mention it, you don't really remember seeing the twenty four car flip. Like there's been a lot of car numbers, like the twenty eight car. You know, God help it. I feel like the twenty eight car, whoever's driving it, looked like the eighty two car half the time because it was upside down. <laughs> that's um, right. But yeah. you know, the only time I can think of the twenty four car flipping in, in any way was uh, Jeff Gordon in two thousand twelve at the the shootout, the Bud Shootout, now known as the Bush Clash. Um, when he he flipped upside down, but I mean, it, you don't really remember seeing that car have have major accidents, uh, re- regardless right. of of the driver. Um, mm-hmm. but it is neat that yeah, not only to your point, Ben did Bobby Allison drive the twenty four. Richard Petty also made a start in the twenty four. Um, at one point, starting and finishing thirteenth back in nineteen fifty nine. Um, I'm throwing out some Ben White style stats on here right there, <laughs> so I just had to get yeah. that in there. Um. But, I mean, obviously there's a lot of history in the 24, and Cecil Gordon, for the longest time, was synonymous. If there if there was such a driver synonymous with the 24 car throughout the 70s, it was definitely Cecil Gordon. He didn't drive for Rick Hendrick. He drove for Gordon Racing, as a lot of people did then. He was a privateer. Uh, but Cecil Gordon, had he carved out a, a pretty nice career for himself. He had 29 top five finishes in the Cup Series and uh, led 20 laps, so... Um, I mean, you take into account the kind of equipment he had versus what he was racing against in a lot of times. Uh, yeah, it's really not that bad. Um, 
But uh, yeah, then, you know, after Cecil Gordon, we had another driver take over the number 24 car. Uh, and his name, as everybody knows, was Mickey Gibbs. Um, mm-hmm. And Mickey Gibbs drove that number 24 Pontiac. And that is the first driver I remember as a little kid. Uh, he made some starts in that car, 91-ish, um, early 92. That was the first driver I remember in the 24 right. car. Um, and go ahead. and also, also I wanted to mention, too, that back in 1991, the, all of the armed forces uh, had a campaign yeah. where they where they ran the, the all the cars uh, and the Daytona 500, and Mickey Gibbs actually carried the Air Force colors. And my buddy Randy Fuller, who uh, was the PR director for the Air Force uh, and stayed with the Wood Brothers for years uh, in the Air Force side of it. And then now he is currently working with with uh, JGR, uh, Joe Gibbs, right? J- JGR, yeah, Joe Gibbs Racing. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. I and he worked any. for he and he was the PR guy with uh, Carl Edwards for years after yeah. he retired from the Air Force. And uh, uh, Jack Roush went to him and said, "Hey, we'd like for you to continue in racing and work work with Carl Edwards as his public relations director." But yeah, he brought uh, the Air Force colors into NASCAR, and that year I remember. All the armed forces branches had a primary sponsorships on all the cars that year. It's just kind of cool to see that. I don't think that had had ever been done. Matter of fact, I'm sure. Uh, it yeah, definitely had. had all right, so done. here's one for you. Do you remember who all did it? So we got Mickey Gibbs in a 24 Air Force Pontiac. Right. Um, I'm gonna see if Alan, I can name them. Okay, you do that because I'm I'm not familiar <laughs> with all. I, I, know I think Alan you Quickie get just as one. many as I would. Alan Quickie drove the Army car number right. seven because he didn't have a sponsor at the time. This was a few weeks before he got Hooters. Um, I think they were still with Mark Stahl or wrapping up their relationship with Mark Stahl at that time. So we got Alan yep. Quickie, the number seven army car. Really cool paint scheme, by the way. You guys ought to check that out. It was like the back of it was black. The front of it was camo. It was pretty badass. Um, Mickey Gibbs in the Air Force car. The Navy car was number 18, Eight, and it was driven by Greg, Greg Sachs. Greg Sachs, right. Uh, sure was. was. the car yep. owner for Cecil Gordon in his last cup start in 1985. Um, mm. So it all comes back to Cecil Gordon, really. Um, yeah. Then... Let's see. Buddy Baker drove the... Wasn't it the 88 car? It was the 88 car. Um, oh, and, and uh, Dave Marcus drove the 71 Coast Guard car. Yes, So Buddy correct. Baker drove the 88 Marines car. We got the... Same. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay, we're good. We're, I had the diecast when I was little, and I okay. we had that race on tape. Um, so, like, when I was, like, seven or eight, back before YouTube existed your only way you wanted to watch old races was this thing called a VHS player. And Ooh. some of you guys might know what that is. This scary giant contraption mm, that you couldn't got some of those. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, um, one of the three or four tapes I watched the most was the 1991 Daytona 500, which is really a great broadcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was the one where all of them did that. It was uh, sort of NASCAR and the military, uh, organizations, I should say military branches. I'm sorry. Uh, partnered with, you know, with the sport, and kind of promoted awareness of both during Operation Desert Storm. Thought it was a really, really cool thing. Uh, obviously, there's been a ton of patriotic ties between NASCAR and the military since then, but that was really the first, you know, large-scale one that they did. And, and when you think about it, it's kind of funny because other than Kawiki, they really paired with teams that didn't have sponsors because, you know, Kawiki was kind of a name. He had a few wins, uh, but he lost Xerox as a sponsor. Buddy Baker hadn't won a race in eight years. Dave Marcus hadn't won a race in a decade or, or nine years. Uh, Mickey Gibbs never won a race. Greg Saxon only won one race. So they weren't partnering with like Earnhardt, Rusty, Elliott, 
Martin, Labonte, Waltrip, you know, they weren't going with those guys. They were going with the, the smaller time teams. And now it's kind of gotten back to that. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. really cool that, um, that the 51, 52, 53 Rick Ware racing team, uh, my friend McKenna does their, uh, their PR and social media. They, they are, they partner with all kinds of military organizations throughout the country. So there's kind of gotten back to that point to where it's not just the big teams have an involvement with, with, uh, with our military, which I think is really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the car that I really liked among those cars that so you had, Gibbs in the 24 Air Force car, you had Sachs in the Navy car, you mm-hmm. had Kowicki in the Army car, you had Buddy Baker, I believe, in the Marine Marines car, and yeah. you had Marcus in the Coast car, Coast Guard car, excuse me. So of those, I loved, I'm a big fan of dark, or Navy Blue. I just love Navy Blue. Yeah, so that's I, my favorite, I, too, was Greg Sachs. I, that car Greg is Sachs awesome. Car. That was a beautiful car on the racetrack. I don't know. All of them look great, but that, sure. to me, that was just my favorite car. So, All right, so you asked yeah. me about where Cecil Gordon's from, and I didn't know, so I'm going to try and stump you. What was the fate of Greg Sachs in that 91 Daytona 500? Hmm. <laughs> I really don't know where he finished. <laughs> well, uh, I don't I remember say. where he finished, but uh, I do remember from having watched that race tape a lot and my short attention span. Uh, it was early in the race that he and this uh, this upstart sprint car driver, I, use, I say that extremely sarcastically, Sammy Swindell and the number 20 glad bag car crashed together. And so they were two of the first cars out of the race. Um, but that was also interesting because Sammy Swindell is a sprint car legend, the second winningest driver in history of the World of Outlaws behind only the great Steve Kinzer. Um, drove this car that was owned by Dick, the late Dick Moroso in the year before that. Mm-hmm. You know, his son Rob, who we talked about at length in episode 20, um, had driven that car. So, I mean, there's just a ton of things going on in that 91 Daytona 500. Um, Cece Gordon wasn't in the race, though, but there was, as we said, there was a 24 car. And the being the fact that the that the NASCAR community really kind of banded together during Operation Desert Storm. It was such a neat thing because I think the country needed it at the time. I wasn't, you know, I was three, so I don't really remember that. The earliest 500 I remember watching live was 93 on Valentine's Day. But yeah. but obviously I've rewatched this race enough to be able to tell you guys when Greg Sachs went out of the race and who he crashed with. So clearly but, I've seen it more yeah. than once. <laughs> But um, you know what, Aaron? The most bizarre thing about that race that the seagull. Uh, still, well, the seagull, yeah. When, okay. When Earnhardt hit the seagull, but the most bizarre thing about it was the odd even pit strategy yes. that NASCAR came up. Oh man! Talk, talk about talk about a goodies headache. I mean, that thing was bizarre beyond belief. A way, and, and the drivers didn't understand it. The teams didn't understand it. The fans didn't understand it. You had to have a sticker on the windshield as to when you could pit, no matter what. It was the most bizarre, strange thing. I mean, listen, if you want, if you haven't had a headache today, and you want to go back, oh, I want to have, I want to give myself a massive headache. Go back and look at YouTube and watch the 1991 Daytona 500. I'm sorry, that was the most bizarre thing that they have ever come up or with. Or take it and out it, of your VHS, put it in your VHS uh, tape player. I'm, oh my gosh, yes. And and you you have to go. I mean, I remember Ned Jarrett. Uh, bless his heart. He was, he had to to tell this on on CBS Sports to yeah. everybody, and and he had to go back and explain this to everyone, almost like a a driver's ed tape. Okay. It oh, like, and it was so confusing. Was, I never it understood it. And it was honestly, nobody I fast understood it. it. Yeah, I fast forwarded it. Nobody understood it, and it was terrible. I mean, I'm not sure. 
I'm sorry, but that was no disrespect intended. Please don't. I, I, it was just one of those things. That, ben, it, I think it, everybody involved with NASCAR then who's still around probably agrees with you because that, that only lasted like a couple of races. Yeah, it, was it, did, a, it didn't work. It was terribly done. And yep. it but terribly conceived. It just did not work. And so at the end of the day, Ernie Irvin wins the race. Uh, great. You know, it, it, what can I say? It just did not work. So let's so, move on. Yeah, well, um, to give you guys a little bit of background on why they did that, uh, Mike Rich, I think we mentioned this before, Ben did, that Mike Rich was a tire changer on Bill Elliott's pit crew in 1990. He was killed when Ricky Rudd kind of wheel hopped and spun going into pit road at the Atlanta Journal 500, the last race of the year in 1990. He was pinned up against Elliott's car when Rudd wrecked and it killed him. Uh, Obviously, insanely tragic situation, something that at the time, you know, Nobody could have expected, but then looking back, Ben, it's like, my God, how could you not have seen it coming? First of all, there was no speed limit on pit road, um, and you had a, and you had like guys going over the wall well before the car got there, uh, and not to mention the fact that they didn't have those those poles that they hold the signs on now. The guy who held the sign just stood in front of the car, mm. and you just kind of yeah. figured they'd slow down in time, uh, and so there were all these things that people just weren't they weren't cognizant of what. The, the level of risk that, that that there was, and so NASCAR, you know, to their credit, they they needed to come up with something, and they didn't have a huge time frame; they had only a couple months to really implement this. So they tried this odd or even deal, where uh, I think it was based on Ben. If you remember any better than I do, um, I don't know that even Mike Helton remembers it probably now. But um, if you qualified odd, you had to pit with all the cars that qualified in odd position. Or if you qualified an even position, you had to pit with all the cars in an even position. And somehow they would give you your position back or somehow that would work. I don't think you could pit for fuel and tires under green. I think you'd only pit no. for one or the other. That's right. That, yeah. You couldn't do both. Yeah. No. So, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, and what's crazy, you know, to come from that was uh, pit road speed limits, which is so much yeah. easier. And it was so elementary. It's like, okay, let's just have a pit road speed. And yep. it was the same concept as, as driving 70 miles an hour on the interstate. And then it went down to, or, or not necessarily the interstate, let's say that it's a 70 mile an hour zone and then it goes down to 55 and then it goes down to 45. And, back and if you're driving to Darlington, you're going through McBee, it goes to 45 and then to 35 and block yeah. later and then 55 for half a block and then 45 and then 25. Right. I, mean, I don't know why they didn't do that. But I mean, think about yeah. this for a second, Aaron, if you... It, for many years, from 1959 uh, at Daytona, and and the cars doing well in those days, believe it or not, they didn't do but about 160 or 65 on on the the high banks of Day, uh, yeah Daytona, and then of course the speeds increased, but they would come right off of turn four and go straight down pit road, uh, doing 180 some miles an hour, and hope and pray that your brakes work. Yeah, and that's the thing. You guys have to remember this, because I learned this later on in my career. I probably wasn't really... I didn't really know this until I was in my mid-20s, that there were different... I mean, it makes me sound stupid now, but I was stupid then, so I'm probably still stupid now. But um, there are different types of brakes you use for different types of racetracks, obviously, because you know the heavier the brakes are. Why do you need heavy brakes to slow your car down in Daytona? So they use these brakes that like you had to really you know, lay on them to get your car to slow down on a super speedway. And as it was, Ben, the guy who told me that uh, is far more known as a Trans Am racing champion and a former Formula One driver 
who also did really well in the Indianapolis 500. But he made a couple Cup Series starts in the 70s as well, and that's British driver David Hobbs, mm-hmm. uh, who was announcing the 1991 Daytona 500. Uh, uh, but Hobbs told me that, and I was like, I that makes perfect sense. Well, I wouldn't say stupid at all, uh, Aaron. It's one of those things that you just don't think about. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that, I mean, unless you're – educated in breaks it's i mean i mean it all due respect to you it's just not it's not a stupid thing it's something you just honestly don't think about unless you're behind the wheel of a car uh uh, say at a wilkesboro versus a daytona i mean yeah you it's just not something you would think about but it's a big deal the teams for sure it is yeah sure it is and uh and so yeah i mean but you think about coming off i know a prominent well-known championship driver of the cup series who told me once that he said, I remember going off of turn four at Charlotte Motor Speedway and and go right down pit road and I never lifted off the off the floor pan of my car and kept right on going. I mean, <laughs> that took some steel nerves. Let's and and he way. probably was not the only one to do that. I mean, it's, <laughs> no, you know, of course not. Yeah, I mean, you just don't think about it. And I've taken, I've done driving schools at Charlotte, and you get to the point as we've talked about, not to go into that again. But you you get so used to driving at 160 or 170 miles an hour, you don't think about speed. And then when you get on pit road like that, and it's and you're required to get down to uh, to a stop after doing 180 miles an hour, and you're gearing yeah. down, and you're putting your foot on the brake pedal, and you're you're going from that fast to stopped. So and you've got to make sure your wheels are straight when you're. Uh, you're you're pitting and you're making sure that your tires come off and go back on. You're you're not think you got so many things you're thinking about. So, in all due respect, things can go wrong on pit road. So back to what we were talking about, you have to so many things in a driver's mind in a split second things can go wrong. Yeah. So so fortunately, someone come up with the idea to do pit road speeds, but but for decades and decades, they they never thought about you know putting a pit road speed on pit road and and sadly too many times what happens is a tragedy happens before uh before changes are made and and i think that goes back to not being stupid to your point ben it's just to not realizing the risk in a lot of cases sure absolutely we don't think about things going wrong because we we become complacent with things going right and then what suddenly when things go wrong that's sadly is when things uh, when when changes are made, and so yeah, anyway, we fortunately we've not had a tragedy, we've not had a death, uh, and sadly we lost Dale Earnhardt in two thousand one. But we've not we've not had any. Thank the good Lord, and we don't want any more. Knock on wood. And knock yeah. on wood. Yeah, sure. So, um, speaking of Dale Earnhardt, maybe it's possible that some of our listeners, our dear listeners, may not know, or you might just not remember. In this 1991 Daytona 500, which we've discussed, and there, oh my gosh, there's so many freaking cool things about that race. It's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Dale Earnhardt had a really fast car. He won the 125-mile qualifier, as he did every year of the 90s, uh, and he was one of the favorites to win, along with Ernie Irvin and Davey Allison. And what befell Dale Earnhardt before anything else? He hit a damn seagull on the racetrack. And mm-hmm. at this point, Ben, you know, obviously I was young. I don't remember this race, but if I were the Earnhardt fan then that I became not too long after, I would, uh, you, you just kind of wonder why does he not just stop trying in the race? Because he just blew a tire on the last turn of the last lap the year before 
technicals in the back stretch and whatever the bell housing, but work with me. Um, and now he's got a great car in this race. He's got a great shot at winning it and hits a seagull. Like what are the freaking odds that mm-hmm. a seagull would fly so low that it could get hit in the 500? And if anybody would hit it, it absolutely would be Dale Earnhardt. I mean, mm-hmm. it would have to be. Now, if yeah. it was the July race, it'd be somebody else. It'd been somebody like Dale McCowart or somebody in the back. But no, on the 500, it had to be Dale Earnhardt. And so he did. So he hits a seagull. And they have to come in and pit and take seagull seagull debris. I don't know. Take seagull debris <laughs> off his car. <laughs> That's um, a good way to put that. Yeah. And it dam- obviously, certainly damaged the front, the nose a little bit. Uh, but he was still quick, still quick enough to be fighting for second with Davey late in the race and got loose, slid up the track, and they wrecked. And so it prompted the caution that, that helped Ernie win the race, which at the time was only Ernie's second win of his career, which is pretty wild. He'd go mm-hmm. on to plenty more uh, restrictor plate, super studio success than that. But yeah, Dale Earnhardt hitting a seagull, Ben. Uh, when that happened, like, were you even surprised at that point? Not really, because I mean everything had gone so wrong for Dale in that race, and that was sort of so weird about it. He could win anything on that racetrack except the 500. I remember part of that watching that race recently. Uh, you know, sometimes I love to just sit back and watch the old uh, CBS uh, race coverage yeah, of, that, of those, of, and I love the music. They used to have the like the the music that would come into the races. Oh, yeah. I used to love those Me too. when they do the starting lineups and things. And I, I don't know. I just loved Ken Squire and uh, and Ned Jarrett and those guys. Can you sing it? Can you sing a bar of the song? Absolutely. Or are you gonna make not. me do it? No, no, absolutely not. We've 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 worked <laughs> so hard to build up the fan base of a life uh, in NASCAR. I, I certainly don't it. want to. No, no. Uh, <laughs> All right, I'll try. Things, so no, you're good. Man, so, no. the, so the mid '90s <laughs> was not my favorite one. Um, no. The '91 one was great because really they their cut ins and cutaways were. Um, sampling david coverdale's last note of freedom from days of thunder which is a really mm-hmm. cool song but yeah, yeah like 95 96 you know that do 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 oh, yeah, do, yeah. do do yeah see like yeah, everybody remembers that when they watch that you know they would use it for michigan some and yeah so, yeah and that, see like everybody were, right now just tuned out because i did that or they're like oh yeah. man yeah i totally remember that um, cause that, yeah. you know, that was a, a staple of the mid nineties races on CBS. And yeah, I mean, to me, and this is no slide against any network that's covered racing. Cause obviously I've said before that I wanted to be Bob Jenkins when I was a kid and that dude's an absolute legend, but yeah, well, it just, hey, you gotta like, go, right, go you ahead, gotta sorry. go with Kent, Kent Squire had that, that particular way of delivering, uh, his, his voice, his, a way of delivering this information to the to the listeners. Of course, Barney Hall also, and that's why they have the, the Squire Hall Award. Yep. I mean, those guys were absolutely magic on radio and television. You knew exactly. And see, that's the that's the beauty of being able to tell what's going on in the racetrack without becoming the story yourself. And that is so so important. And those guys were the absolute best. But uh, talk about this race though. I mean, talking about Dale Earnhardt, he did everything he could possibly do until, you know, of course, the magic comes together in 98. But I mean, everything you can imagine went wrong for him in that race. And the seagull, I mean, what, and I, I remember thinking to myself, I was there for the race, and I'm thinking, what else could possibly go wrong? And, you know, Childress said it best. They go to him every year, five laps, eight laps to go. Yep. 
Earnhardt is in the lead, and he just had that stoic sort of look on his face. And then like he I just knew Dave, something was going to happen. Yeah, like watching yeah, the just, Panthers game last year. Yeah, David, Dave Despain would go to him, or he'd be the Mike Joy. And here we are again, you know, Childress. What do you think is going to happen? We're five to go. What do you think? That, is this the one? And he just never moved his chin out of his hand. He said, "We've been here before. We've yeah. been here before." And he he was so. You know, he was so glued to this, the sunglasses, the hand and chin every time. And sure enough, here we go again. It's the same old thing. <laughs> that sucks until, so bad, man. Yeah, That's so tough. Yeah, until 98 and finally it came yeah. together. But yeah, you're right. It could be, I mean, it could be something falling from the sky and hit, hit his windshield. I mean, who knows? I mean, it was always the same thing every, every what, year. What was the press box reaction like when you guys saw that he hit this seagull? Oh, well, I, I can't tell you what the press box was like because I was actually down a lot of those years. I was on pit road. Okay. Matter, matter of fact, matter of fact, sadly, I was on pit road the day that Mike Rich passed away. And I got a call from upstairs with my uh, Steve Wade saying, Ben, you need to go to the, to the nine pits. Something terrible has happened. And my, my job in the same respect with what NMRN's guys were doing you had pit runners yeah. down there. Those guys, my, my job with NASCAR scene and NASCAR illustrated was to sort of be right there. If you go back and you look at a lot of those clips from ESPN and, uh, you know, when they were covering the races, you'd a lot of times, I'm not trying to toot my horn here cause that's not the way I mean it. It's just that you would see me there. Uh, you were the fact, original I, photo bomb King of NASCAR. I, yeah, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be because my job was to be right there. Yeah for the scene and illustrated guys because Steve Wade radioed to me and said something really bad has happened in the nine pit. We need to go find out what's going on. And that's when, you know, what, what you had just mentioned, yeah. how Rudd had, and Ricky didn't mean to do that, of course, but when he hit his brakes, his brakes, one of his brakes locked is what happened. Yeah. And it spun his car right into the side of Bill Elliott's car. And Rick, Mike Rich was on that, uh, right rear tire, changing the tire. He he never saw Ricky at all. Yeah, and and it just it put him between the two cars, and so I was in the midst of what was going on on all these all these things on pit road. So and, you were in the trenches with Earnhardt too, then when that happened. Yeah, yeah. Also, also, and you, there's another clip I was telling uh, Craig Baronselli and Josh Mole about our our guys that uh, you know with pole position and out of the groove. I just remembered it the other day. They were back in 1992 when they had the Southern 500 and it was rained out in the last laps and Darrell Waltrip ends up winning the Southern 500. Uh, and Davey Allison is cut out of winning the million. I just happened to be there. And of course, Davey and I were really close friends and I couldn't get away with this for nothing in this day and time. But I went out on pit road and I got basically just talked to Davey right as he got out of the race car. And so I wasn't trying to get in the way. It's just like I had a job to do. And so I yeah. just went out and said, I said, Davey, uh, is it okay to talk a little bit? And he's like, yeah. And he said, well, I said, well, let's, that's what I was saying to him. I said, let's just go over the wall over here. I couldn't get away with that. Now I'd be arrested and escorted out. They of the threw you out, Ben, no doubt. They would have. But I mean, at the time we were close enough friends and NASCAR didn't have those restrictions, but that's what I was saying to him. And, and I was telling those guys, Craig and Josh, I said, what I was saying to him was, that's what I said. And, and and he didn't say anything because he was so frustrated that he had come within 30 or 40 laps, I think is what it was, of winning that race. And, and that's the way Davey was. He just, he was keeping it to himself. In close quarters, he would have probably kicked and screamed and said a few things. I don't but that's understand the point that. I'm trying, 
that's the point I'm trying to make long-winded in my delivery here, but I was trying to say that's where I was a lot of those races in those days. I wasn't in the press box. I was down on pit road, you know, getting the story. I've got the, probably the, the strangest pit road one for me that I just, that just really memorable off the top of my head was the 2014, 15 uh, all-star race. I think it was 2014. Um, yeah, it was, I believe. So, uh, they ran the, the showdown, the sprint showdown on the Friday before the all-star race. So Friday was the showdown and the truck race and Saturday was the all-star race. Um, and everybody's thinking Danica Patrick's going to get the fan vote if she doesn't race her way in. I was standing on pit road in an empty unused pit box with, uh, Vince Welch of FS1 and the FS1 camera guy and the person, you know, who holds the TV thing. So if you guys didn't know, um, these, these, pit reporters see the action and they see the broadcast as they're talking. That's how they know that who they're talking about is on camera because somebody carries around a, a little t- TV of sorts and, a, and that they can see. So they know what they're talking about is being displayed mm-hmm. to you as you're watching the broadcast. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about Danica and talking about the, the showdown. I'm like, all right, you know, they're getting ready to show the, um, the, uh, the graphic on the screen that, you know, that Danica, I voted in and, and the fans don't know this yet. And then all of a sudden they showed Josh Wise. And I was like, wait, what? And <laughs> this Josh Wise in this Dogecoin car, which, you know, we'll get into crypto in a, a different episode probably since it's kind of taken over the world. But at this time, Dogecoin was a joke on uh, on Reddit. And I don't know if you've ever really been on Reddit, Ben. I posted one thing on Reddit. I'm not much of a Redditor, but I got friends who are. So I was just like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Like, Danica's not going to be in it because Reddit basically voted Josh Wise into the All-Star race. That was just, it was bizarre. Um, I was happy for him. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Josh Wise, a former junior motorsports driver in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, and certainly somebody not unlike Cecil Gordon, unlike Ronnie Thomas, not like a lot of people we've talked about throughout the history of NASCAR, who, had they gotten a better ride, maybe gotten a better break, things probably look very different for them now. But um, that one, to me, was just like, Man, you know they were serious about that deal when then Josh Wise he carried the the Reddit vote all the way to the All Star race. That was pretty crazy, but uh, but nobody hit a seagull in that race. So then it wasn't as special mm. as 1991. So can you just imagine like what Richard Childress's reaction was when Earnhardt I guess came over and said, you know, I hit something. I, if I was Childress, I would just be like, and I mean, <laughs> we got out of the way early, I guess. So that's yeah. Kind of, I, I remember this. I remember uh, the crew trying to fashion something to go on that front left uh, headlight bucket that would keep the air coming, not just duct tape. They were trying to work on something of a, of a metal nature and shaping it in such a way that they could rivet the thing on there because, you know, it was really going to be an aerodynamic issue for them because he had the, the, the he i said that actually i was trying to say the seagull yeah uh, it, could, had, he, it could be he or she we don't know how identified I'm, yeah i'm really not sure i didn't see the autopsy report but it was um <laughs> it was part of the post-race press release for yeah, good i guess so yeah could, <laughs> could i'm sorry been. go ahead yeah could have been but i mean it was they were trying to you know fashion something in such a way it wouldn't tear up the the aerodynamics of the car and as it turned out I'm not sure whose fault it was, but Davey and Dale got into a spinning match on the back stretch with just a few laps to go. Yep. Uh, got into each other and 
off or not. But I mean, it's that's kind of the way it was. But you know, I want to go. I want to digress and go way, way back into our conversation. There's something I wanted to mention. Uh, changing the subject here a little bit. I want to go back to the number 24 car. So something I, I've discovered, and I'm sure you know this, but I, I come back to my brain. And, you know, a lot of fans may not realize this, but the 24 car was not to be uh, a part of Jeff Gordon uh, nostalgia early in the game. He was not going to run the 24 car. Did you know that? Yep. I know the first it, car that he was expected to drive. Yeah. It was going to be number 46. Yep. I think and, we touched on this, but Ben, yeah. we can actually go back farther than that. Do uh, you remember the first team Jeff Gordon was expected to drive for? Because it wasn't Hendrick Motorsports. Yeah, it, was, series. it wasn't Bill Davis. It was before Bill Davis. So in 1991, he was with Bill Davis driving the one car, the Carolina Ford dealers car. Right. And there's, uh, it was even reported on Inside Winston Cup that uh, Kale Yarborough Motorsports was uh, looking for a driver for the 66 Trop Arctic car. And they were negotiating with Jeff Gordon to drive the car. So he already had he had interest well before, you know, the whole deal. And I'm not going to get into it, but I'm still a little skeptical of Rick okay. Hendrick's story, saying the first time he saw Jeff Gordon was at the race in 92. Like, bro, come on now. Everybody knew about Jeff yeah. Gordon in 1991. Like, he was a known commodity by this point. Well, my, my understanding was this. Now, there may be another story, and, and I'm not doubting the 66 K Arbor thing at all because that there may be a something to that my understanding was at atlanta he was in the but i mean the, the uh baby ruth car humpy wheeler and rick hendrick were there together and they were watching the what was in the bush series race now yeah. the expanded Which race yeah and he they stopped for a minute they were walking up the steps and they stopped and rick stopped him and said I'm going to watch this kid because they need lap right here very soon. I'm just going to watch this kid bust his butt right now. And every lap, he had all four of those tires smoking, but he never lost it. And the lap after that, wait, 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 let's wait another minute because I'm going to watch this kid spin out. Never did spin out, never did spin out. So he just kept watching him and said, well, this kid's got some talent. And Humpy said, yeah, he's got some talent. You need to, he's, no, he's going he's gonna to spin this thing out any minute. Never did spin it out. Okay, so, all right, one thing led to another. As it turns out, they found out he didn't have a contract with, with Bill Davis, and they found out uh, uh, and he was rooming with Andy Graves, and Andy was a crew guy with Ed Hendrick. And so, well, ask him. Ask him if he's got a contract when you see him when he comes home tonight, whatever. And so, he's, he's next day, he comes in and calls him in uh, to Rick's office and says, well, does he have a contract? He said, no, he don't have a contract. He's just driving for him. So he calls him in and says, do you have a contract? He said, no, sir, I don't. And this is a little tiny little Jeff Gordon with a mustache and really shy, shaky little kid because he's like he's never been in public with anybody before. And I remember the first time I met Jeff, I met him at a place called Sandwich Construction Company there at Charlotte and myself and Rob Griggs, who owns NASCAR scene, and my wife, Eva, and Jeff. It's just the five of us went for a hamburger one night and I, I love you, Jeff Gordon, but he was he was just just really nervous and just a young kid, and that's understandable. Yeah, that's he was person. younger than anybody else racing at that time since we just lost Rob Moroso. So really, right. only only the young guys that are coming into the sport in any way. I think we mentioned a couple podcasts ago where uh, Robbie Gordon, who unlike Jeff Gordon was in the 1991 Daytona 500, he drove the Publix car, and Wally Dallenbach Jr. 
And so yeah, and, those really those and, and Bobby Labonte and those are pretty much your young guns. Right. And so, Jeff, I mean, I, I love you, Jeff. Bless your heart. I'm not trying to pick on you, man. But I mean, he was just a nervous little kid. He had just come in at first. I'm not kidding. That's the five of us. My wife, Eva, myself, Rob and his wife, Betty and Jeff Gordon, the five of us. First time I'd ever met him. We had a great dinner together. And asking him what he wanted to do, I, I said, I think I want to try r- driving stock cars. Okay. And just had a burger and fries and a Coke, and we just really hit it off and got to know each other. All right. And so we had dinner that night. Well, one thing led to another, to another, to another. And then he signs uh, with uh, Rick Hendrick, and here we go. But his original car number, when he and Ray Evernham got together, was number 46. And the reason they had to change from 46 to 24 was this is about the time that the Days of Thunder movie came out and there was some type of something in the movie that was a licensing agreement problem. Yeah, Paramount owned the rights to all of the uh, the number 46, um, the number style they wanted to use. And so they didn't get a chance. I, I, I remember who told me this. It might have been Evernham himself, but they had this switch because there wasn't they didn't have the permission to use the 46 the way they wanted to, some of the royalties that they made would have to go to Paramount. So it was either use this number that we like and throw some of our money away just because Paramount has rights to it or just pick a different number. And then right. they were like, obviously we need to pick 24 because it's Cecil Gordon's number. And Cecil Gordon is, you know, the best Gordon to ever drive the 24. And I guess Jeff was like, well, you know, bet. And um, 93 wins later, and now he's... You know, and he's the main one in succession to take over at Hendrick Motorsports. So right. it seems like it turned out pretty well for Jeff Gordon. Yeah, it did. And, and you know, uh, uh, Buddy Baker ran the number 46 for Hendrick Motorsports one time, and he did not qualify the number. He did not qualify for the Daytona 500, so he didn't make the field. Al Lunster Jr. did make the field yes. for Hendrick Motorsports in number 46. 93, yeah, man. Right, and I believe there was an, either an engine issue or a crash. I'm not sure. He but. crashed in the 125 and junked what was an awesome paint scheme, unfortunately. I'm a big little yep. Al fan, and even five-year-old me was excited about this. We've said before that, you know, uh, one of the first podcasts we did, Ben, one of the coolest things I was all about was comebacks and people outside of NASCAR trying NASCAR because this mm-hmm. was a time where people didn't do that. And little Al trying it, you know, there were drivers at the time. One driver, I remember, you know, little Al ran IROC all the time and he kicked ass in IROC and IROC was almost entirely NASCAR tracks. And so there was, I can't remember if it was Rusty Wallace or Kyle Petty, I think it was, who said about little Al, he was like, oh, he's a NASCAR driver. We just got him on loan to IndyCar right now, but he'll come race with us eventually. And Mm -hmm. as crazy as it was, that wound up being the only time he ever ran a cup race. Mm, yeah. So I think it'd be fun to do a podcast sometime devoted just to the what ifs. And you and I have talked about this before, how the pieces of the puzzle, had they not fallen a certain way, what could have happened? As a matter of fact, I think it's one of your suggestions that I think it'd be fun to try had a driver gone this way or that way, how it may have, and, and that's speculative. I mean, you know, you, it's it's a fantasy speculative type show, but you know, had, you know, cause Jeff, I talked to Jeff recently for a, for a piece I wrote for speed sport. And he told me flat out, he said, I didn't have any desire to go to NASCAR at all because I lived in Pittsburgh, Indiana, 27 miles from Indianapolis motor speedway. I went to high school that way. I passed by the speedway. This is my, this is what I want to do. I was a big Rick, Rick Mears fan. I wanted 
to drive Indy cars. I had no desire to go to NASCAR whatsoever. Didn't like know Jimmy about Johnson. It. Both of exactly. them. Were, both of exactly. them were born in California. Both of them are big Rick Mears fans. Right, and Ricky Rudd was the same way. His his whole heart's desire was to drive Indy cars, and they didn't. And as fate would have it, and friendships would have it, and the way their careers ended up going. They went to NASCAR, and who knows? They could have possibly been great IndyCar drivers, but that's just not the way it was intended to be, and that's not the way fate sent them in that direction. Hey, Jimmy's still got time, man. He's getting better. I saw him racing yeah. at Ohio a few weeks ago, um, and he really is getting better. There there mm-hmm. are a lot of IndyCar drivers that, that rush to Jimmy's defense, which he shouldn't even be in attack for this. I think it's, it's, no, it's what he's doing is fascinating because it's really like Michael Jordan trying baseball. Uh, right. There's not any other real comparison right. to well, somebody see, leaving and trying something completely different just because they just love it and they just want to try it. Well, well, see, here's the problem. This is the problem for any athlete in that direction. And take Jimmy, for instance. I mean, he's got he's got seven Cup Series championships and 83 victories, and and people crucify him because he hasn't immediately right off the bat become a great IndyCar driver. Look, I don't know what the exact number is for an IndyCar chassis, the weight. I think it's 1,400 pounds. Pardon me for not knowing that, okay, because I'm a true blue stock car guy, okay? But what is it, 3,700 pounds for a stock? I mean, come on, there's so many differences in these types of race cars. The weight, the steering radiuses, Everything the tracks, the tracks. Jimmy's never driven. Uh, That's what's crazy too, because he's only doing the road courses. And IndyCar doesn't race at Watkins Glen or Sonoma anymore. And the first time the Cup ran at Road America, Jimmy's an IndyCar. Every track he's raced on this year is new to him. The only one on which he had any experience was the Indy Road Course, and that's just from a test session. Uh, Okay, let me use myself as an example here, and I and I'll be honest with you. Okay, I've studied everything possible about NASCAR since I was 11 years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers and I make mistakes all the time. And oh, I try really, really hard. <laughs> I try really, really hard not to make mistakes, but I make them. Okay. But if someone came to me and said, okay, Ben, here's the deal. You absolutely can't cover NASCAR anymore, but we're going to put you at, into an ice hockey arena. And starting tomorrow, you got to write 1500 words on ice hockey. Sorry, I would enjoy that. I wouldn't. I, <laughs> I, I don't know a thing about ice hockey. I really have no clue about. Here's the number one rule when you write something: know what you're writing about. Sure. I mean, sim- That's why I hate got, writing about tennis. I mean, I'm serious, guys. I'm serious as I can possibly be. I would suck so bad that I, I wouldn't even attempt it. And and so and I did. Michael that, Annette play hockey. I don't know. I think he did. I think he was I can a tell you that, I can tell you this much. If I wrote about hockey, it would be hockey. I mean, literally hockey. I don't know anything about it. And and I'm just saying, and I do I say that jokingly, but I say it respectfully. If if Jimmy Johnson has got to have some time to learn what an IndyCar is. Yeah. If if any athlete jumps into a different arena, they got to have some time. I mean, come on, this is not fair to him. He's got to have a, a season or two to really study, and he may make it or he might not, but I, I totally respect anybody who wants to try their hand at doing what they love to do, and if they don't make it, they don't make it. I mean, give him a chance. Good grief. I mean, yeah. give him give him a chance to see if he – and he might say, you know what, this wasn't for me. I tried it. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm bowing out. Thanks for the time. 
appreciate it. See you later. At least he tried. I mean, but yeah. I, I, I think he's going to do well, but you got to give him a season or two to adjust and see if this is what he can do well at. Yeah, and I honestly, I mean, he's he's got a, he's under contract for another year with Ganassi, so I think he's gonna he's really gonna improve next year when he just has a baseline. You know, when when you're talking about a new race team, uh, he's working with all new people, driving an all new car, going to tracks on which he's never driven. Sure, there's a, a huge challenge, but I think he's gonna be. Mm-hmm. I think he's getting more competitive, and he's gonna continue to get more competitive as he gets used to these cars and gets acclimated to uh, to not just driving the cars and running the tracks, but also his racecraft as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it is really cool. So that that makes me wonder, Ben. I know you don't follow IndyCar extensively, but Mm-mm. you got Jimmy Johnson coming from NASCAR to IndyCar. Um, was there ever an IndyCar driver that you thought of, like, man, he'd be a really good fit in NASCAR if he ever tried it? Um, well, I mean, yeah, there's a couple that I think did well in that respect, and they're older, my generation guys. And there's two, actually two or three that come to mind. Uh, you know, AJ Foyt was pretty good in a, in a stock car yeah. that w- that was known for for Indy cars and jumped the fence and went to uh, to NASCAR. He won five NASCAR races for the Wood Brothers. Okay. And and then there's another one, uh, Gordon Johncock, who won Indy car races, and I believe he. I'm not sure if he won an Indy car or not. Oh, he won. I mean, I mean, I, I, mean yeah. I, I apologize. I said that wrong. He won in Indy cars. I did. I don't know if he won in stock cars. I said okay. that wrong. I got you. And then uh, Johnny Rutherford won obviously in Indy cars. Long and I star believe, Jr. Yes, and he did win a qualifying race at Daytona. Uh, and back in the days when they counted the one twenty fives that are now the one fifties, oh. they actually counted them. Yeah, as as NASCAR races, and I'll tell you a guy who really adapted the other direction, really really well in Indy cars, and that was Donnie Allison. Cause yeah, Donnie went Donnie went to Indy at least twice. Times. Yeah, at least twice and finished in the top ten both times driving for AJ Foyt. And I tell you what, if the little bit more had happened in a positive light in his direction, he could have won the Indy five hundred twice. Yeah. I mean, he never. I mean, the man just sat out in those two cars and said, fire them up. And he came really close to winning the Indy 500 and the, and the super modifieds in, in around Miami, uh, when he was quite a bit younger, he did really well in those. And that's what, why he did so well and acclimated so well to the Indy cars. I mean, yeah, they're just, there's some guys that jumped the fence and I'll tell you somebody else. And it's not just because I'm close friends with him. But Bobby Allison drove in 73 and 75 Indianapolis 500s, and had he not had mechanical issues both times, I feel confident he would have done well. I won't, I don't know if he would have won, but he did He did lead both the 73 and 75 Indy 500s. That's true. So you got, you got guys who can have done well jumping the fence to from IndyCar to stock cars and back, back and forth and have done well. And, uh, yeah, but A.J., uh, comes to mind as uh, as having won in both series and won big races in both series. Yeah. So there's another one now, and I've I've championed this cause for years, and he has only spent this summer proving me even more right. Uh, my man Marco Andretti. I've been a Marco mm-hmm. fan since he started out in IndyCar. Again, you know, uh, pull for the Andrettis, pull for the Petties, pull for the Earnharts, just what I do. Pull for the Schumachers as well. Um, but like. Marco, for much of his IndyCar career, 
Marco, a lot of Marco's best tracks. Now there are some exceptions. Marco's been really good at Detroit. He's been good at Toronto. Um, but for the most part in his career as an IndyCar driver, Marco was strongest on oval tracks where NASCAR competes. Uh, he's got a you know great history. He hasn't won Indy, but he's won the pole. He's he's finished in the top five a bunch of times. He's uh, he, he's already carved out a legacy there of being a you know a contender. Um, but Marco was always good at Indy, at Texas, and he won at Sonoma. Um, you know, they're, they're Richmond. He was super fast at. Um, I almost I saw him almost win there in 2008, and had um, had the caution pit strategy gone his way, he definitely would have bagged a win there. Um, and so I, I've always thought Marco would be so much better if you put him in a stock car, like you know, and let him race. He just has that type that just gave me that vibe. So now he's done. Ben, he's done the superstar racing experience, the modern version of IROC. And then what mm-hmm. happens? He gets in this full-bodied stock car for the first time. He's driven sports cars, obviously, but um, in addition to IndyCar, but not a lot. He gets in this full-bodied stock car that Ray Everham and those guys put together, and they go out uh, a couple weeks ago, and he won at Slinger. He beat Tony Stewart. He beat Elio Castroneves, Paul Tracy, all these legends, uh, that kid Luke Finhouse. Uh, he, he beat all of them and he won the race. And it just continues to prove my thought that somebody needs to put Marco in a car in the Xfinity mm-hmm. series, at the very least, um, and give him a shot because I just think his race craft, his skill set and everything, his attitude, it's very well suited for NASCAR. And his uncle John did really well in NASCAR. And I think mm-hmm. Marco could do the same thing if he ever wanted to give it a shot. Um, but that's, you know, that goes back to what you're talking about with Jimmy Johnson, Ben, is it's so rare to see people do that. I mean, they realize mm-hmm. how difficult it is. And, and we've talked before about, you know, Montoya, Danica, Hornish, um, Dario, Franchitti going from, from IndyCar to NASCAR. And, you know, all of them tell you how difficult that adjustment is. And, and Jimmy Johnson knows how difficult it is to go from NASCAR to IndyCar. But mm-hmm. Marco, I think, is one who you could put him in an Xfinity car, and I think he could win a race pretty pretty quickly if everything went mm-hmm. his way because I think he just has that kind of skill set and it has the ability, has the, the temperament, and he's not afraid to you know put the chrome horn to somebody. Uh, he's just got that kind of short track racer atmosphere that's, or that attitude is so cool because he didn't grow up doing that at all. He raced carts and open wheel cars, but it's like they put him in this superstar racing experience car and it's like, damn, he just looks like a natural. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a problem, too, Aaron, and, and that is this. When your name is Andretti, when your name is Petty, when your name is Allison, when your name is at the very top, it is so incredibly unfair to those guys like Marco and like Kyle and like the third, second or third, especially third generation drivers. Yeah. Because they just, they're so, they're expected to be just like dad. And it's like, you know what? They're never going to be just like dad. But that doesn't mean they suck. No, no, not at all. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Not at all. And and that's what I'm saying. You know, Kyle Petty and I've had long talks about this. It's like, there is absolutely no way I was going to win 201 races because I'm Kyle Petty. And Richard Petty is Richard Petty, and Lee Petty is Lee Petty, and in and, and the expectation level that that the public and maybe even the fraternity puts on on those types of guys is just so incredibly unfair. So let them be themselves, and let them be in their own box, and don't make don't make me out to be Richard Petty, and don't make me out to be Bobby Allison if I'm Davey or you know because I'm just me, and I you know the the, the pressure is incredible. And let me win my 15 or 20 races and not don't expect me to be, 
Because, see, Richards told me the same thing. He said, everybody expected me to be Lee Petty, and I'm not Lee Petty, even though he, by far, Richard, by far, excelled over yeah. what Lee did. Yeah. But but you're talking about different eras and different types of cars and different expectations. Yeah, it's I apples mean, to oranges every time. Yeah, it is every time. And so it's so unfair to Marco to be compared to Michael and so unfair to be, uh, to be compared to Mario because – they're, they're just individuals and, and let them set their own bars and let yeah. them be themselves. And I, I just feel sorry for them in a way, sure. compassionate, because they just can't do their own thing. No matter what they do, it's never going to be good enough. And yeah. that's the sad part of the story. It is. But, you know, I, I just I think that it, Marco, somebody I was talking about this with somebody in Atlanta about how I don't remember who it was. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. It was my buddy Lenny Batiki. Um, yeah. so Lenny and I were talking, Lenny and other, you know, uh, to your point, Ben, about Richard Childers, long, long time Childers, Childers person worked there throughout the nineties. But, um, you know, I was talking with Lenny about, about that, the day of the Atlanta race about Marco winning at Slinger. And I was like, you know, Marco's done more for his career in SRX than anybody in terms of like, you know, Ernie Francis has been, has been phenomenal. Um, but I think Marco has really done himself a lot of favors with his reputation among the, the casual race fan for how solid he was in SRX. And, you know, and, and then he was like somebody he's like, he's going to get an Xfinity car out of that deal, I think, because you can't watch him on those short tracks and not think, all right, if he can do that against Tony Stewart and Bobby Labonte and Bill Elliott, like he at least deserves a shot in the stock car. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Mario won a Daytona 500. Mario could win in the stock car. Like I said, Uncle John, very strong in the stock car. Um, I think Marco eventually is going to do it. I don't know when, but I look for Marco Andretti to, to, to give NASCAR a try. And I just think it'd be super cool to do. Like I say, you know, I'm a fan of watching people do things out of their comfort zone. Um, fortune favors the brave. And I think if Marco ever gave it a shot in NASCAR, he'd do pretty well, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. Well, it, it also, I agree with you. And it also is the same with Dale jr. And, and Dale senior. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, Dale, Dale jr. Did his thing and, and he enjoyed his career and he continues to, to enjoy his career just on a, in a different chapter. Yeah, He's a good career. announcer too. I enjoyed hearing he, him call the New he, Hampshire race. Right. He, he is. And, and he had to look at it like, okay, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to accomplish what I can. I don't know that I'm going to win seven championships or, or eight, but you know what? The sad part of that story would be when somebody said, if he won seven or he won eight, why didn't you win nine? There's no winning that argument. So you have to go into that with the mentality of, I'm going to do the best I can with with, with my life and I'm going to enjoy my life and I'm not going to let me get it, not going to let this get me down. But I want to tell you what one of the greatest quotes I ever heard. and, And Kyle Petty told me this again for an article I wrote for Speed Sport. And, he, and this was about Lee Petty. And it was the coolest thing, and it put it all in perspective. He said, this is what the deal was. Lee Petty didn't care one thing about a trophy at the end of a race, okay? He won a ton of races, not as many as what Richard did, but he won a ton of races, okay? But as long as he got the, the money at the pay window, because that's the, he was one of the very first drivers. The professional, yeah. A professional driver to to be able to support his family on racing. Okay. As long as he got the money, he didn't care about the trophy. Okay. Richard, on the other hand, who won 200 races, he said, Richard Petty would race for a bucket of chicken. He didn't care about the money. 
as long as he won the race and or got a mayonnaise sandwich. Um, maybe a mayonnaise sandwich or a little bit of pepper. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He he raced for a bucket of chicken. He didn't care about the money or the trophy. The, the trophy was the bucket of chicken. You see the difference? Yeah. It's like that. Okay. So that puts it sort of in perspective among those two drivers. Now, if you looked at Bobby Allison and Davey Allison, Davey wanted to be just like Bobby, but he, but Bobby wanted Davey to do better. And that's what every father wants their son to do is be better than they were. And that's the way I feel about my son, Aaron, mm-hmm. is I want him to, to excel more than I did. We're both in racing in, a, in two different capacities. I'm in the journalism side. He's on the competition side. But I want him to excel and be better. I want to look. I want us to both kick our feet back and have a beer one day and say, "Hey, I'm proud of you because you did more than I did." Yeah, that's and all, I hope that. Sorry, go ahead. I'll just say I hope that. Uh, I hope that he shows up to a racetrack with ill-fitting pants twice to prove that he he could accomplish <laughs> twice as much. Yeah, exactly. Listen, <laughs> listen. I want him to have. I want him to have bologna on his sandwich, not just mayonnaise. That's right. That's right. And uh, so, he, yeah, okay. put twice as much mayonnaise on his hot dogs. So yes, that's so yes. gross. And there you go. And that's 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 the, that's the meaning of life. Is to you put want mayonnaise on a hot dog? No, no, no. You want you want your your kids to to be able to put more mayonnaise on their hot dog. That's right. Yeah. And well, yeah. that's what that's all. That's what life is. Yeah, all about. I mean that's you know that's what you're you're taught from a young age. You know, so yeah, you want them to you want them to have a better life than you did, and sure. you want them to be happier. You want them to be happy doing what they're doing. If it's digging a ditch and that must makes them happy, great. That's sure. that's what it's all about. And so there you go. There is the philosophical ending to a life in NASCAR number twenty four. The world according to Ben. <laughs> ben, I, I love that. I think we've crossed the finish line on episode yes. twenty four. Um, I love chatting with you, man. It's been a blast yeah, as always. Too, Glad that we got a chance to to catch up and do this again since I, I had to take an episode off. Um, but um, if you guys listen out there, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. Um, we're very proud to be a part of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network, which also includes uh, such renowned podcasts as Noah Talks NASCAR with Noah Cornelius, who is super awesome, and the NASCAR Weekly Podcast. Uh, so we're, we're very happy to be a part of both of those things. You guys ought to listen, give them a listen, too. Noah touches a lot more on the, um, the, the, current, the current side of the sport than Ben and I do because Ben and I like to live in the past, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. There's nothing Amen, wrong with brother. that. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that. we got a lot of stories to tell, and uh, sometimes you know we, we like to educate each other, too, and stump each other, but... Um, we appreciate you guys listening. We'd love to hear your feedback wherever you're 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 consuming our podcast. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to get ready for episode 25. We're probably going to talk about Tim Richmond. We're probably going to talk about Kenny Schrader because uh, those are two of my guys, and Ben uh, has covered them for a long time. So you guys get ready for that. I'll have some pretty cool Tim Richmond stories to throw out. But in the meantime. For my buddy Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. I want to thank you guys again so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. So long, everybody.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.